Welcome to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. Awakening to enlightenment involves breaking habits we have had since time out of mind. In Methods for Awakening, Jetsama Akon Lamo shares some techniques from the Buddha's teachings that will help us accomplish this goal. Uh, I'd like to confess to you that at the moment I am reading a very ordinary, commonplace novel. And uh, some, those of you that know me well probably aren't surprised. I am noted for reading common, ordinary novels. But at this point, uh, I'd like to confess to those of you that don't know me very well that yes, I do read common, ordinary novels. In fact, this one is one of the most common and ordinary. It's one of those wonderful novels by Stephen King. (laughs) That's about as ordinary as you can get, isn't it? Anyway. I'm reading a novel called The Stand. Have any of you read that? Oh, please confess. Oh, thank you. So many people have read that book, The Stand. And the new, twice, good. Great, because I'm reading the new version, too. Yeah. (laughs) And I find this book fascinating. Fascinating because it's so believable. And that's what makes it so fascinating, is the fact that it is believable. What makes it believable is that It's a story about good and evil, and that each one of us, in our immaturity, see both good and evil as being something outside. And that's what makes this book so fascinating. To read this book, every part of me that is trained or has any realization about the Buddha's teachings at all knows that that's crazy. The whole thing of the book, the whole idea of externalizing good and evil to be an apparent good force and apparent bad force in the world, combating one another and fighting together. It's a crazy thing to write a book about because it sort of undermines everything that the Buddha teaches. The Buddha teaches us that everything that we experience, including the perceptions and habitual tendencies of our mind, are just that. They They originate within the mind and they originate due to our habitual tendency. But the way that this book expresses good and evil, it externalizes it nicely into a dark force and a light force. Particularly, there is a light being and a dark being. The dark being being kind of like a personification of the devil. And I think that's really fascinating because it's so believable in that everyone I think in Western civilization, probably on all the earth, is willing to believe in the externalization of such forces as that to the degree that we take no responsibility for our own mental state, take no responsibility for our own internal workings, and rarely look at the content of our minds. But we do believe in evil, and we do believe in good. It's really interesting. So in reading this book, it makes me think about how superficial we are. I've talked about superficiality before in Sunday morning classes, and I'd like to elaborate on that a little bit. We are so superficial in our thinking that everything that appears to us appears to us in such a way that it's totally believable and totally solid. Do you think that you are superficial, spiritually? Of course, nobody's going to say yes. Nobody's going to say yes. Well, those of you that know I'll get you later, you'll say yes, won't you? (laughs) But new students don't know me well enough, and they're afraid to say yes. They, they, They think that they're very profound and very deep spiritually, and it's an easy conclusion to come to, because here you are trying to learn, trying to meditate, trying to accomplish some spiritual good in your life. But in fact, we are extremely superficial spiritually. All of us are. All of us. The first test of our superficiality we have already flunked. 
and that is that we walked into this room and most of us that sat down sat down on a chair and when on sitting down on that chair we didn't even look at that chair twice we absolutely believed that that chair was going to hold us up we absolutely assumed that that chair was going to hold us up we were so clear we just plopped right down didn't we in plopping right down we should understand that what we've told ourselves is that we believe in the world of appearances absolutely believe in the world of appearances to the degree that we know nothing about the primordial wisdom nature that the Buddha is always teaching about we believe in phenomenal reality to the degree that we myself included plopped right down with utter simple ignorant confidence and lo and behold due to our confidence the chair held us up now for those of you that are sitting on the floor please don't give me that smug look <laughs> you plopped down thinking that your bottom was going to be cushioned didn't you and I know that if you had sat on a chair you would have thought exactly the same way because when you sit down to dinner don't you have confidence that your chair is going to hold you up we believe in phenomenal reality on a very superficial level we believe exactly what we see exactly what we hear and we believe what we feel we believe the information that is given to us by the five senses now when it comes to uh, contrasting that with what the Buddha has taught there are worlds of difference between what we pick up with our five senses and what the Buddha has taught the Buddha teaches us in fact that everything that we perceive including all phenomenal reality including this really solid stuff that we have such utter confidence in is actually a display of the primordial wisdom nature in the state of ordinary perception that we find ourselves in that is to say a state of perception that does not comprehend the primordial wisdom nature but only takes at face value relative phenomenal reality what we see displayed as phenomena is actually not understood at all it is not understood to be a demonstration or an emanation of the primordial wisdom nature but it is seen and it is understood more in accordance with our expectations these expectations have a source and the source began a very long time ago long time ago according to the Buddha not in this life not even one aeon ago not even two aeons ago we're not even sure how long an aeon is anyway but not uncountable uncountable aeons ago the Buddha teaches us that we had a tiny moment of assumption and that assumption began the time when we believed when we assumed in self nature to be inherently real and solid there was a time when we gave birth to the idea of I self nature from that time on we began in a process of elaboration that process by necessity must distinguish between self and other in order to understand self nature in order to perceive self nature one must constantly distinguish between self and other so that process of distinction began a very long time ago and a process of elaboration that continues to build on that understanding of distinction that also began a very long time ago present-day psychologists will tell you that children start realizing their identity as being separate from their parents um, in infancy and then finally understand that they can survive without their parents believe it or not finally understand that at about the age of three and the Buddha teaches us that's not not correct at all not even close not in the least that what we see as developmental in our infancy 
is only a reflection of the assumption of self-nature that began countless aeons ago. And that development, or so it seems to be development, is only the display of that assumption. But that we have deeply ingrained within us, within us the habitual tendency, within our mind stream, the habitual tendency of the assumption of self-nature distinguishable from other, self separate from other. And then we have it engaged in that habit, in that tendency, for uncountable aeons. Due to that habit, our perceptual process is extremely superficial in that before we even have it, it is already determined. It's already laid out. Literally, we know what the five senses are going to tell us. They are going to tell us what we already assume. The five senses are actually developed as an extension of ego identification. I taste, I feel, I see, I smell, I hear. Who hears? I hear. What do I hear? I hear you or something other than self. All of these five senses are an extension of self-nature, or rather the assumption of self-nature. So we already know what the five senses are going to tell us. They're going to tell us that self-nature exists. They're going to tell us that other exists, and that other exists as separate from self-nature. We already know that. Now we have other things that help us in this search for truth. We have glasses, don't we? We have glasses so that we can see you better. So that we can know where you begin and I end better. The glasses prove that you exist, but we already knew that. We have binoculars. We have telescopes. We have mic microscopes. We have an amazing array of scientific instruments. In this day and age, most of the general public has no idea how vast is our collection of things that we have developed as extensions of the five senses that are going to tell us what we already know. And the interesting thing about having all of these instruments is that they're so precise, they're so awe-inspiring that no one can argue with them. We think that we have scientific proof of things that we couldn't possibly have scientific proof of because the instruments that we are using are faulty in that they are only extensions of the five senses which are extensions of the assumption of self-nature which are going to tell us what we already know and have known for aeons and aeons of time. So yes, we are extremely superficial. Actually, sometimes when we get enough education or maybe enough scientific training or maybe we've seen through enough microscopes or telescopes to the point where we can say, wow, I am in total awe of everything that I see. That's so profound. It is so profound to be able to look at the next galaxy or the tiniest little unseeable piece of phenomenal matter. It is so amazing to be able to determine that an atom can be split by some instrument. And thinking that we have seen these things, we think that we are so deep. We are so profound. We have discovered quintessential meaning. We're so smart. But in fact, the further we go into that kind of knowledge, the more superficial our minds become. The Buddha teaches us that we are completely steeped in ignorance. That in fact we have three root poisons, hatred, greed, and ignorance. Ignorance is not something we like to think of ourselves as having. Isn't that true? By the time you get to like second grade, you're convinced that you are no longer ignorant. And by the time you're a teenager, well, pff, 
You know what happens when you're a teenager. I have uh, a teenager and one that has recently recovered, but not quite <laughs> from teenagerhood. And I know, I remember from my own experience that at the age of 18, I became omnipotent. Or has that changed when I was 30? And I finally got a little smart, but at 18, I knew. And I knew that I knew. So much more than any other life form, it was ridiculous. <laughs> and I can see that happening to my son as well, who may never recover, but anyway. <laughs> we feel that we are totally in control. We have no idea that we are ignorant. We have no idea. But according to the Buddhist teaching, we are infinitely ignorant. In fact, the more we think we know, and the more that we accept as proof the information given to us by the five senses, the more supremely ignorant we become. Isn't that hard to understand? But it's true. Because the Buddha defines the opposite of ignorance or wisdom as being the awakening to the primordial wisdom nature, which has nothing to do with the information given to us by the five senses. The five senses will never tell us about our nature, will they? How could they? They are developed as an extension to ego. Ego is already assumed. Self-nature is already assumed by the time the senses come around. So how is it possible for the senses to tell us anything about the primordial wisdom nature? We cannot awaken to the primordial wisdom nature while we are relying on the information of the five senses or any of their extensions. So therefore, we find ourselves in something of a pickle. Literally, to begin to awaken to wisdom, one has to abandon the information given to us by the five senses. One of the methods for awakening to that wisdom is renunciation. Renunciation is considered an antidote. Because everything that we want, everything that we have, must be understood as an extension of the distinction between self and other. If I want a car, the bottom line, the bottom assumption that has to come before I can want that car, or even determine that there is such a thing as a car, or such a thing as a me to drive it, the bottom line that I have to assume is the distinction between self and other. There's nothing to want if we have no idea where self ends and other begins. So renunciation is one way to untangle some of the ego identification, some of that false assumption. But it takes a long time. And this is really what the basis of our talk is today. Examining some of the Buddha's methods, I know I've taken a long way to get to this point, but it's helpful, I think, to really be able to apply some of these teachings to our own personal lives. It's one thing to be able to hear them and read them and make a grocery list about them and document them and number them and have them as little treasures in your mind and then never use them. That's easy. But using them is the tough part, and using them is what we should do, and we will do it better if we apply it to our lives. At any rate, what is the method to begin to disenchant ourselves from some of the ignorance that we are so steeped in? How should we practice the Buddhist teachings? How can we apply the antidote? Well, here's an interesting thought. For something like ignorance, and even for something like desire, and even for something like hatred, these three root poisons, the Buddha teaches us that abstinence from practicing these three root poisons is a method. It is a method that will lead to realization. It is a method that will lead to the pacification of these three root poisons. How should you practice such abstinence? Well, let's say if you're, if you're working on hatred, you could practice kindness, couldn't you? You could practice loving kindness. If you were working on trying to eliminate grasping or greed from your mind stream, you could also practice kindness, couldn't you? 
you could practice being kind and generous. And that generosity would serve as an antidote to the grasping, wouldn't it? Well, what about ignorance? Well, as in the description of wanting the car, ignorance is the basis for any of the other two poisons. And so one could also practice the pacification of ignorance by practicing generosity, kindness, simple abstinence from relying on these physical things to make us happy. That might bring about the pacification of some of that ignorance that makes us believe so solidly in phenomena. The Buddha teaches us that abstinence works. But let's think about this. If we've been practicing identification with ego, distinct, distinction between self and other, and all of the elaborations that come from that, all of the psychological structuring that come from that for aeons and aeons of time. And we don't, again, we don't know how long an aeon is, do we? We're just assuming that's a very long time. I would guess thousands of years. Who knows? But anyway, if we've been practicing this for aeons and aeons of time, how long do you think abstinence from practicing these things is going to take as a valid antidote? Probably, can I have a drum roll please, aeons and aeons of time, wouldn't you say so? Well, how long are you going to live this stretch? I mean, I know we found a lot of cures and everything, but really, how long do you think you're going to last? 80 years? 75, 80, 85? Let's say you get to live as long as Mother Abigail in the book, The Stand. 108. And then even she goes. You're not going to live aeons and aeons of time, are you? No. Do you know how you're going to take your next rebirth? How? Are you going, do you know? Can you tell me? You hope you know, but you don't know, do you? The Buddha knows, but you don't know. Because one has to really have attained enlightenment in order to be able to see how all probabilities are going to play themselves out. We really don't know. Oh, it's popular now to go to uh, someplace like Georgetown and look for a sign that has a hand on it, you know and uh, find a psychic person who can tell you how you're going to live in your next life. Or better yet, pay $10 and how you already did live in your last life. <laughs> All you have to do to find that out is look in the mirror, isn't that right? <laughs> You've lived a virtuous life if you're doing well now. At any rate, one never knows how one is going to take rebirth. So, does one know if one will have the opportunity to practice again? Not really. No, you hope so. You hope that you've accumulated enough virtue through your practice in this present lifetime to be able to come back in such a state as to continue. But it's a little scary to think that you're going to spend your whole life abstaining from these habitual tendencies that increase one's hatred, greed, and ignorance and not have the opportunity to continue again in the next life. That's a frightening thought to me. That's a frightening thought. So we begin to practice in such a way as to ensure an auspicious rebirth. We try to contemplate and meditate and make offerings. We try to increase the virtue that uh, will blossom in the next life by uh, committing virtuous acts. You know, we try to, to be kind, we try to, to um, propagate the Dharma, we try to do all of the things that will be virtuous in the next life. We try to find out what's the most virtuous thing you could possibly do. It's one of the reasons why I'd love to build this 75-foot Amitabha statue that we're planning on, because I'm going to hedge my bets. And I would recommend that you do the same. So we hope that we will engage in the kind of activity that will bring about 
an auspicious rebirth. But we don't know. If we suffer from ignorance, the Buddha teaches us that we can practice even a more profound antidote than not totally getting sucked into believing in phenomena. And that antidote, of course, is meditation. Because the Buddha teaches us that while ordinary view has us believing in the solidity of phenomenal existence, that solidity is based on the idea of self-nature as being inherently real as well. While we believe in self-nature as being inherently real and we distinguish constantly between self and other, the Buddha teaches us that we are not awake to the primordial wisdom nature. While we sit down in our chair with utter confidence, we are in fact not awake to the primordial wisdom nature. We may know about it, we may theorize that it exists, we may have heard the Buddha teach about it, but we are not awakened to that nature. Because that nature is the inherent nature that is the true natural state. That nature is inherently empty of self-perception, inherently empty of the process of distinguishing between self and other. In fact, it is inherently empty of all conceptualization, of all distinction. That state is the natural, primordial, empty view. We have not awakened to that view just yet. How can we apply the antidote necessary in order to practice so that we can awaken to that view? Of course, meditation is the key. But one has to be very careful what kind of meditation one uses. Meditation is a much-used word nowadays, nowadays, isn't it? There are many popular ways to meditate. You can meditate by visualizing. Lots of people like to meditate by visualizing. There's, I don't know how many self-help books that you can go to any bookstore and pick up, books that tell you that you can start meditating by uh, relaxing your toes and then relaxing your ankles and relaxing your calves, and you can go all the way up to the top of your head, and then you are totally relaxed. Please don't think that that kind of meditation is going to bring about enlightenment. Probably will bring about some relaxation, but it will not bring about the desired result if what the desired result is, is enlightenment. Because it's always you that's relaxing. And you that is relaxing against stress, pitted against the stress that you feel. There is still all that clinging Neither will you achieve the desired result of enlightenment if you visualize your meditation, such as the common practice of visualizing yourself in a beautiful place under auspicious conditions and visualizing light coming down into you and light going out from you and light surrounding you and then the angels come and sing you the hallelujah chorus or some such thing, perhaps the Buddhist equivalent of that which doesn't sound anything like the Hallelujah Chorus, I want you to know. But anyway, all that visualization, all of those funny things that, uh, that we think are going to bring about the desired result, and perhaps visualizing such a meditation as that, we do have a feeling of excitement and happiness and bliss and certainty that we have uncovered the secrets of the universe, but guess who's uncovering them? And guess who also has not awakened? to the primordial wisdom nature. Yes, who is not awake. There are many different ways that you can meditate, but my advice on that is to take only the recommendation of the Buddha, because the Buddha is awake. The Buddha has awakened to the primordial wisdom nature. In this day and in this time, uh, to use a a sort of common way of expressing myself, I will say that in the spiritual supermarket, they're selling a lot of bologna. 
And there are a lot of things that are being taught, some of which actually are being taught as the teachings, as though they were the teachings of the Buddha. And there are some things that are being taught as though they came directly from the mind of enlightenment. You have to use a lot of care. You have to really distinguish between one thing and another. Please don't fall prey to anything that will delude you. The Buddhist teachings have been carried down from student to teacher, from teacher to student, from student to, uh, to becoming a teacher and then teaching as a teacher to another student in an unbroken lineage, unchanged, since it was first given from the very mind, from the very appearance of the Buddha. There has been no counsel that has ever changed the Buddha's teaching. There has been no directive to ever bring about change in this unbroken lineage. And one should understand that under those circumstances, one can have some certainty that the Buddhist teachings are fresh and pure. But it's not true with every method that is given to you in the spiritual market today. There are some methods that bring about a feeling that can make one feel secure in one's spiritual practice. There are some methods that can bring about a feeling of confidence, a feeling of happiness, a feeling of excitement. But if they do not arise from the mind of enlightenment in an unbroken chain, they are not suitable. That's one test. Another test is this. If someone rises up and says to you, I am the mind of enlightenment, don't believe them. Don't believe them until they have ascended into the heavens with a rainbow body and done all these fancy things that you can just have total confidence in. And better than that, all the disciples that come after them can also, if they practice their method, give the same result. I have to tell you that I am such a cynic that even if someone to, were to be reborn right now and say to me, I am the reincarnation of the Buddha, and you know some have said that, I am the reincarnation of the Buddha and now I'm giving you the new way. I've come to give you the next age. I would say, great, I hope you live a long life and I hope you're right. But until I know for sure that the ones that come after you will get the same result, as the teachings the Buddha gave, I'm going to follow the old ones. Sorry. That's what I would say. I'm that much of a cynic. And you should be too. It's healthy. Americans have too much, too many things they can hear. It's too confusing. Be safe. So the Buddha teaches us to practice meditation, use the method that the Buddha has given. Now the Buddha has given very many methods. Actually, the Buddha gave the method of abstaining from hatred, greed, and ignorance as a way. Now, he did say that it would take aeons, but abstinence is a way. And in the Vinaya, uh, the monks and nuns, those that take robes, are taught not to drink alcohol. They are taught not to engage in sexual activity. They are taught uh, not to uh, accept money in an ordinary way from the world. Um, there are so many different rules and regulations that they must practice. And the Buddha teaches us this is a valid method that will bring about the desired result of the pacification of hatred, greed, and ignorance. But other methods have been taught by the Buddha as well. And they are taught accord according to the particular karma of the student who is practicing and who is hearing the Buddha's teachings. One such method uh, that was taught and, and that seems to be different from the Buddha's teaching of abstinence is the Vajrayana point of view, the, the, the method that is practiced here. It seems to be very different in that Vajrayana practitioners do not necessarily 
stop engaging in sexual activity. And depending on what level of vow they take, they do not necessarily stop drinking some alcohol or dancing or listening to ordinary music or any of the things that the Buddha cautioned against at that level of his teaching. So if these students are not practicing abstinence, how are they practicing? How will we pacify hatred, greed, and ignorance? What is the antidote that we will practice? Well, according to the Buddha's teachings, we can practice something called correct view, which is the cornerstone of the Vajrayana point of view, the Vajrayana practice. This practicing correct view is a kind of meditation. And of course, the Buddha, in, on every level, suggests meditation. This meditation, well, one portion of this meditation, advises generating oneself as a purely enlightened Buddha or Bodhisattva as a Buddha. For instance, uh, most of the different forms of practice associated with Buddhism have at least heard of the Buddha Amitabha. Isn't that true? Most of us who have heard of Buddhism at all have heard of the Buddha Amitabha. He's practiced and revered in most countries, I believe. I don't know of any that do not practice him. Um, most countries that practice the Buddhist, te Buddhist teaching. Because the Buddha himself taught about the Buddha Amitabha. So we practice the Buddha Amitabha, and in the Vajrayana point of view, we actually visualize ourselves as coming from the meditation on shunyata, arising from the meditation on emptiness, arising as the pure emanation of the primordial wisdom state or the seed syllable, such as hung or shri. And in meditating that one's mind is completely inseparable from that pure seed syllable, one then generates oneself or sees oneself, meditates as oneself being the Buddha Amitabha. That is a practice that we use on this path. Well, what has that got to do with abstinence? What has that got to do with pacifying hatred, greed, and ignorance? Well, in generating oneself as the Buddha Amitabha, do you think the Buddha Amitabha would sit in this chair as I am and see just these faces as I do? No, the Buddha Amitabha's mind arises from shunyata and rises from the nature of emptiness, pure, undefiled, completely inseparable from the seed syllable, from the primordial wisdom state in its emanation phase. Therefore, it cannot have ordinary view. Cannot. If the Buddha Amitabha were to gaze upon this congregation, it would only see its own nature. It would see itself. And so we practice accordingly by meditating on shunyata, generating oneself as the pure, purely arising emanation state free of any defilement. And then we practice the view. The view is to see all phenomenal existence as being an emanation of the primordial wisdom nature. I would see this place as the celestial palace, the palace in which all purity arises. I would see each one of you as Amitabha. I would see each one of you as the purely arising natural state. I would view that in my mind. That would be my practice. And that is the cornerstone of Vajrayana practice. And I would complete that meditation by understanding as well that all phenomenal existence, viewed as it is, is completely inseparable from emptiness. And just as it arises from the nature of emptiness, it is also instantly, spontaneously liberated into emptiness, inseparable from emptiness, indistinguishable from emptiness.
this is the view. In that view, how should one, how could one cling to ordinary phenomena, understanding its nature? How can one cling to ordinary phenomena? That would be impossible. It could not be accomplished. Therefore, in practicing the view, we are in fact practicing the meditation of abstinence, of renunciation. We are in fact practicing the meditation that will lead to the awakening to the primordial wisdom nature, but we are practicing it in such a way as to move much more quickly on the path. This is not a passive meditation, you see. If we were to just stop clinging to phenomenal reality as best as we could, we would always be battling the habitual tendency of our mind, wouldn't we? How would you stop relating to a chair as a chair? You have always related to a chair as a chair. How would you stop wanting a car? You have to get somewhere, don't you? Our habitual tendency dictates that we must continue in this way. But if we can practice the pure view associated with Vajrayana, we are speeding up this process, almost like burning the candle at both ends, if you will. We are speeding up this process in such a way as to apply the antidote far more quickly than we could while we still had to play out the karmic cause and effect relationships and habitual tendencies of our mind. Oh, it doesn't mean, believe me, this is a mistake that people make in Vajrayana. It doesn't mean that you can engage in any kind of conduct that you want to. It doesn't mean that you can go around having all kinds of crazy sexual relationships and you can drink yourself into oblivion and you can, you know, uh, make a living as a go-go dancer. What, I don't think they call them that anymore, do they? Anyway, that shows my age, doesn't it? But at any rate, these are not things that you can engage in. These won't help you. How will they help you? So I'm not saying that you don't have to change your life. I'm not saying that you don't have to engage in abstinence. But one carries it forward by practicing pure view. This is the meditation that will swiftly accomplish the cessation and pacification of ignorance. It is said that if one were to apply oneself in a very strong and forthright way to the practice of Vajrayana, if one were really to be able to apply oneself quickly, one could achieve realization within one lifetime. If not within the course of that lifetime, then surely right at the moment of death, having practiced generation and completion stage, stage practice, one could awaken to the primordial wisdom nature, which is neatly displayed at the time of one death, uh, at time of one's death, but which one unfortunately hardly ever recognizes because one is so deeply steeped in one's own habitual tendency that one cannot see that nature. So one could achieve it at the time of one's death. And it is said that if one practices Vajrayana, if one does not achieve realization during the course of that life or at the time of one's death, then surely within three lifetimes or perhaps seven lifetimes, accomplishment will occur. There is a great deal of virtue, a great deal of merit, and a great deal of actual accomplishment in practicing in that regard. But please make no mistake. Meditation is not meditation is not meditation. These techniques are a very strong and firm and proven technology. They have provided the exact result of realization again and again and again. Uncountable lamas in the lineage have achieved realization by practicing the very methods that they have taught us. And they have left behind and absolute certainty on our mind, in our minds because their bodies have produced relics. They have had perfect and auspicious and magnificent signs at the time of their death in order to convince us that they have had this result. You can't say that about your garden variety meditation.
So for those of you, and again, this is a class for the general public. Some of you practice Buddhism, but some of you do not. Some of you know something about the Buddhist teaching, and some of you do not. To those of you that do not, please take away this message. Make no mistake. Don't continue to be deluded. We are all deluded. We don't have to continue doing that. That's not hard to do. Don't try to continue delusion by following the method of someone who has not themselves achieved realization or proven that their disciples can. Follow the Buddha's teaching, because this has proven to give the result. And please understand that the message here as well is that one must practice the antidote to one's particular habitual tendency. The Buddha teaches us that we have the habitual tendency of hatred, greed, and ignorance. The antidote must be applied. The interesting thing about that book I was telling you about, about the stand, so interesting in that the idea is that there's no real antidote that has to be applied, that everybody's just going to come out all right in the end, you know? Good will triumph. Why? We don't know why, because good will triumph. There's no real reason why good will triumph, but we think that it will. And there was one interesting point that one of the characters brought out. Uh, she said to the very uh, centerpiece of evil in this book, she said something like, um, uh, evil is ignorant, which is true, I think, but therefore it has a half-life. Oh yeah, who says so? How long has cyclic existence been going on with ignorant people in it? I haven't seen a half-life. I haven't seen it naturally diminish. Looks to me like nobody's getting any smarter. If you just let the thing play itself out, samsara is cyclic existence. It is a circle. It will continue to eat itself and feed on itself and build on itself and create itself because that's its nature. It is cyclic, circular, and there is nothing in cyclic existence that magically adds up to enlightenment. Enlightenment can only be born of the seed of enlightenment. It cannot arise from confusing information such as what is given to us and such as what we see in cyclic existence. Therefore, make no mistake. Take that which arises from the mind of enlightenment and it will produce enlightenment. The hatred, greed, and ignorance within your mind stream are not going to naturally work themselves out. They will naturally work, yes, but they will just work themselves around again and again and again. Even when you apply the antidote, haven't you seen how difficult it is to break the habit? Think what will happen to you if you don't even try. If you just have confidence that someday you'll get enlightened for no good reason. The Buddha teaches us that is not so. You must apply the antidote. And for ignorance, the antidote is meditation. Meditation of a proper technology that arises from the mind of enlightenment and will therefore result in the awakening called enlightenment. These are the Buddha's teachings, and they must be understood as true. To apply the antidote of hatred, one must practice kindness. In the Vajrayana view, one practices seeing all sentient beings as being completely inseparable from the mind of enlightenment. I practice seeing myself as Amitabha, and I see you as Amitabha. How are you different from me? Where do I end and you begin? How would I hate you? How would I go against you? And furthermore, how could I achieve enlightenment without you? Therefore, I must return again and again and again in order to benefit sentient beings. This is how you should think. That is the Vajrayana view. And as for greed... How could one be greedy? Arising as the pure, undefiled state that is the same as Lord Buddha Amitabha, one sees all phenomena to be the celestial palace. Perfect. Neither here nor there. 
inherently empty in its nature, and spontaneously liberated, free. Without constriction, without beginning or end, without defilement, how can one grasp with that view? Or as they say in Brooklyn, what's to grasp? So, this is the view and this is how it should be practiced. And one can begin to practice accordingly. One must learn the technology. For those of you that are interested in learning the technology, you can continue to come and uh, eventually uh, there will be the opportunity to learn certain practices and these practices will have in them generation and completion stage meditation. For those of you that just wish to take away any valuable thoughts that, that you can today, please set your eyes in one direction and do not be deluded by the faults of cyclic existence, not even by your own five senses. Set your cap on awakening to the primordial wisdom nature. According to the Buddha, it is the only true end of suffering because in cyclic existence there is no escape from suffering. There is none. There is nowhere you can go and nothing you can hide under that will ensure that you will not suffer. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org.